Hello, it's Aisha. Before we get started, I've got some very exciting news. We're recording a live episode of the Weekly Economics podcast in London on Tuesday the 5th of November, and you're invited. I'll be in conversation with Maya Goodfellow, author of the new book, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, and we'd love to see you there. Tickets are completely free, but you do need to book. You can get your tickets today by following the link in the description of this episode. That's Tuesday the 5th of November, with me, Maya Goodfellow, and a live audience. Link in the description. Make sure you book today so you don't miss out on tickets. All right, on with the show. Here are some common lines you'll hear about the economy. We all put money in, or we take it out. Some people pay their fair share, but others don't. We can't overspend. Putting public spending on the national credit card would be irresponsible. Greed is just part of human nature. We all need to tighten our belts. And at the end of the day, the system is so big and complicated that it's really outside of anyone's control. The thing is, all of these old adages are a matter of opinion. And crucially, the way we talk about the economy affects the way we think about its future. It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. This week, what we're really talking about when we talk about the economy. Stay with us. I'm so pleased to be joined by two experts on either side of the pond. On the line from the US is Anat Shenkarasario, communications expert, researcher and author of Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. She's also a host of Brave New Worlds, a fantastic podcast just like this one. Welcome, Anat. Thank you so much for having me. No, thanks for being here. We've also got, on the other side of rainy London, the fantastic journalist Ellie Mae O'Hagan. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian and author of a forthcoming book on the collapse of the centre ground. Hi, Ellie. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, awesome. So let's dive in. We're going to start with you, Ellie, um, and in the UK. So you were involved in some of the research behind a big report called Framing the Economy, which was produced by a whole bunch of organisations, NEON, the New Economy Organisers Network, PERC, the Public Interest Research Centre, NEF, the New Economics Foundation, oh my God, so many acronyms, and the Framework Institute. Let's talk about the findings from that report, starting with the way the British public currently thinks about the economy. What are some of the metaphors or the frames or the ways of understanding that people commonly use right now in the UK when it comes to the economy? Well, you touched on a few of them yourself there. And I think one of the most uh, influential ones over the last uh, five, 10 years has been what we call the container model, Mm -hmm. which is the idea that British people view the economy as a container that you put money into, essentially, and you take money out of it. So, you know, when people say things like, taxpayers are good and benefits grounders. It's just the idea that there's a finite amount of money in the economy and some people take it out and some people put it in. And and the desirable thing is for people to be putting more in than they take out. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it can be a useful uh, model because it, it tells us that the economy is something that we're all contributing to together. But of course, it obscures the way that we organize wealth. And it's also not true that the economy is a kind of finite, unchangeable container. Actually, Mm. the economy can be organized in lots of different ways. And obviously, we can see with um, the coalition government's austerity program that the idea that the economy is finite and you need to take money out of it can lay the groundwork for some very regressive policies. So that's one. Mm. A big one at the moment, which I think is. 
playing a huge part in the kind of turbulent political scene in this country is people are extremely fatalistic. They think that the system is rigged. They think the media has a hidden agenda and they fundamentally don't believe in the possibility of change. They think that the economy is always at the edge of disaster and they use words like tumbling and falling to talk about uh, the economy and how it works. They also only understand the economy as money. um, Most people uh, they they use the um, metaphor of the pound circulating around and around the economy. They don't think of the economy as things like the environment and social care. And I think one of the biggest findings, which is a, both a drawback and an opportunity for progressives, is that people have what we call a cognitive hole when it comes to understanding mm. the economy, which means that they actually have a big absence of frames. And okay. the economy seems to be kind of unique in the sense that it's uh, one of the few subjects that people feel very anxious about expressing opinions on because they feel that they might look stupid. You know, other subjects where people might have similar levels of information about, they will nevertheless form opinions. But with the economy, they, they're sort of reticent to do that because they think that it's kind of opaque and complex and they're afraid of looking stupid. Okay, so they were some of the key findings that came out of that report. I want to dive deeper into them in a little while. But for now, Anat, how does what Ellie just said compare to the way that people talk about the economy in the US? A lot of similarities, uh, a lot of congruency. I think fundamentally, there is a tendency to personify the economy. Mm-hmm. It just happened, right, in the discourse we just listened to, where the economy is an agent, the economy is on life support, it's struggling, we have a quote-unquote recovery bill. And what we find through experimentation is that when we prime people with this metaphor in which the economy is an implied sort of omnipotent, omniscient agent and it's making choices or it's likened to a body people are very reticent or actually averse to external meddling. So if the economy is like a body that is healthy or unhealthy or thriving or suffering or so on, just like we think of our own bodies by default, when you're trying to breathe or swallow or your blood is circulating, you don't want some foreign agent coming in there and sort of pushing on your lungs. Mm. Yeah, if you're in critical condition, you want life support. But basically what this kind of language, this personification of the economy, which after all, let's just state it clearly, the economy is a fiction. Economy never bought anybody dinner. It's just a (laughs) convenience by which we measure the things that people make and do and buy and produce and create. And so in allowing our discussions to even ironically be about the economy as opposed to people's needs, people's desires, people's ambitions, the things that people do, we actually are reinforcing a fundamentally conservative idea, which is laissez-faire. Okay, so that's a kind of overview of where we are. But this is a question for both of you off the back of it. How do you think we got here? I know it's a huge question, but what are kind of some of the things that have influenced the thinking that have led to these these cognitive holes, the personification of the economy, the, the things that both of you outlined? What was the path that led us there? The idea of the economy as a container, I think one of the reasons it was so appealing to the public is that it, it kind of makes sense. The Keynesian argument for economics, which has kind of existed in this country for the last kind of 50 or so years, uh, which is that a time of economic um, hardship, the government should invest in the economy, doesn't make cognitive sense to people. 
because yeah. it's the idea of we don't have much money, so let's spend more money. Yeah. Whereas the idea of we need to keep this container at a certain level and the container is depleting. So then we need to like stop taking money out of it. That makes much more cognitive sense. Mm. I think the other thing that's a huge influence on the on the UK public and how we see the economy is our history. The fact that we're an island, mm. which I think helps us to envision our economy as a container more because that makes us kind of isolated. And also our history of empire. Mm. There's lots of shipping metaphors, mm. choppy waters. Sinking ship. Yeah, storm clouds brewing, this kind of thing. National self-reliance is very important uh, in this country to people. And mm. also, I think probably one area where we um, might differ from the American public is that people do think in this country that the economy is ultimately the responsibility of the government. And I think that is also to do with our history, particularly our post-war history of having a government that you know, restarted the economy after the war with big housing programs and also with the foundation of the NHS. Mm. So Annette, how does this connect to uh, what you're seeing in the US? And also on my earlier question, how do you think that you got, well, you got there, they got there, we got there? Yeah, I mean, I know exactly how we got there because it's incredibly well documented. So when there was a liberal, as we called it at the time, ascendancy in the late 60s, early 70s, Republicans sat around and scratched their heads and said, huh, when you look at young people, when you look at university campuses, everyone seems to want to be a Democrat and the Republican brand is going to hell. And they actually made a concerted effort. I frequently like to tell people that if you're going to sell the public a steaming pile of shit, i.e. their own environmental destruction and selling off the country for parts only to billionaires, you're going to have to wrap it in some pretty freaking nice paper. And so... <laughs> They did what they do and they invested and they went to Madison Avenue and they went to cognitive linguists and they went to psychologists and they created an entire industry of how people come to judgments. They looked at how they looked at perception, they looked at persuasion, and they actually made a deliberate effort to package their ideas in a way that was palatable and in a way that was an effective pushback against the truth, which is, of course, that the more money that are in the hands of everyday ordinary people, the more everyday ordinary people do well. And in fact, uh, the larger the economy becomes, because as rich as you are, you know, even if you're Jeff Bezos, you can only eat one dinner. And if a handful of people are sucking up all the money, that means that the basics of our economy, goods and services, there's just a lot fewer people who can purchase them. And that becomes, I mean, that that was what brought on the Great Depression globally. That is, you know, part of the catalyst behind the global financial recession that we experienced and any kind of contraction in the economy when you've got six, seven, ten families worldwide sucking up more money than most of the global population, there's just so many things that you're going to be able to sell. And so what the Republicans were able to do in this country, recognizing that they were going to have to do one hell of a PR job, they came up with discourse like trickle-down economics mm. in order to explain why their completely batshit, crazy, disproven theory actually was going to be good for you guy in West Virginia. 
And the second thing they did was race baiting. And we know this because they have been explicit about it. And by that, I mean they relied upon the oldest trick in the political book, which is divide and conquer. They provided an origin story for people that if you're feeling economic straits, if you're feeling hardship, if you're feeling like that, quote unquote, American dream that you're supposed to be better off than previous generations isn't happening, it's because of him. It's because of them. It's because, as Ali said before, you know, there's lifters and there's leaners, there's makers and there's takers. And it's because of a, quote, culture of people expecting to have everything handed to them and refusing to work. So they created an origin story for why you hardworking, rugged white guy in the you know salt of the earth Midwest are feeling like you can't make it. They divided us from each other, and they were incredibly explicit about it. Nixon's chief architect talked about this approach and this mode of persuasion. Basically, they used race baiting to blame black and brown people for our problems, thereby shielding from view the fact that they're fencing the economy off for parts to a handful of plutocrats. Could you talk a little bit, we we touched on it, but could you talk a little bit about some examples of what this framing has meant in practice and some of the negative consequences. I mean, Trump and Brexit, obviously, but maybe some of the more insidious ways that listeners might not have kind of connected the dots on that we, the ways in which we've seen this kind of play out in the political arena. Well, obviously the big one, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the most consequential economic policies of the last God knows how long, maybe even since the OPEC crisis in this country was the decision to respond to the financial crisis with the austerity program. Hmm. And that was facilitated by the container model. So the government argued there's a finite amount of money in the economy and labor overspent. So mm-hmm. there's been this crisis, so we don't have the money to deal with this crisis, so we're all going to have to cut back. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that they used that was this sort of household budget metaphor, which, which is basically runs oh, yeah. on the same thing as the container model, the idea that you've got a finite amount of money and labor's sort of profligacy meant that our outgoings had to be a lot less than our incomings. And that was the cover that was used to implement a very radical economic program, actually. That was the major consequence of the um, container model. And if you look at polling between 2010, when the uh, coalition government came to power, and 2016, you'll see that people felt that the cuts were, uh, the spending cuts were unfair and were meted out in an in, in even way but that the um, feeling in the public that they were necessary never really changed. Mm. Now, obviously, I can't prove this. I don't have the research to prove this, but I do feel that the container model was a huge influence in convincing people that this was necessary. Yeah. They, you know, they didn't like it, but they had to take their medicine. And that, that was kind of what we were told. And, and the entire sort of um, establishment and all of its institutions bought into this because it was... Uh, so dominant and so successful. I remember the IPPR think tank, which is supposed to be a progressive think tank, describing the austerity program as fiscal realism in 2015. That was really how hegemonic it was as an idea. Mm. And I think when it comes to things like Brexit and Trump, I mean, I'll just speak about Brexit. I'll leave it not to talk about Trump. It's a very complex set of circumstances that I I don't feel can be summed up easily and quickly. Mm. But uh, we know that national self-reliance is already very important to people in terms of the economy. That was a huge part of the uh, the Brexit, the Leave campaign. 
And we know also that national self-reliance tends to trigger xenophobia in people. We know that reminiscing about an ideal past is often what people do when they are asked to think of how they would like the economy to run. They're very mm, unable to nostalgic. think of future solution. Exactly, they just revert to nostalgia. And also we know that people are very fatalistic. Mm. And so the Leave campaign was a combination of national self-reliance, of talking about restoring our ideal past, tapping into people's sense of lack of agency, elements of it were extremely xenophobic. So all of the frames that people have in their minds about the economy, we can see that that tapped into in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels, at least on this side of the pond, that it kind of taps into, as you say, Ellie, all of those frames and, and other ones about the idea of kind of the stiff upper lip and the kind of keep calm and carry on post-war. We're British people and we just get on with it. And I, I it's kind of perfect ground to say, we're going to screw you over with the economy. Show us how, how well you can deal with it with that stiff upper lip. But and that in the so in the US, I, I want, you know, same question, how has this played out? But also, how much do you think that this is just kind of the spin of different political factions playing out in the world and how much are these common frames actually misleading about the way the economy works? Let me uh, frustrate you by saying it's both. (laughs) And by both, what I mean is that the reason that metaphorical models or frames or heuristics or whatever you want to call them, depending on which social science discipline you approach it from, the reason why they exist in language and across language families is because any time we're thinking about an abstraction, something that you can't see or touch or taste, we do so automatically and unconsciously by likening it to something else, right? So the economy is mm. nebulous. Like, what the hell is it? Draw a picture of it. You know, does it bounce? Does does it taste salty? Does it is it purple? It's none of those things, right? It's it's not a thing. And so we have to think of it through some sort of simplifying model. It is no more true to say that the economy is healthy or unhealthy than it is true or not true to say the economy is on the right track or it's on the wrong track, which is a vehicle model. Hmm. Because these are simplifications that we automatically utilize. Now, when you actually attend to the effect of those simplifications when you're paying attention to language because, again, you recognize that if you're going to sell people the seeds of their own financial destruction and their environmental destruction, you got to be pretty good at it. (laughs) Then you attend to which kinds of wording choices are going to trigger, engender, reinforce the set of beliefs that you want them to. And when you, as left of center and left parties around the world, have done for a very long time and only are slowly waking up to this, when you believe, well, the truth is on our side, we'll just just tell the people the facts, we'll just explain to them that Keynesian economics is actually effective. And when you distribute money more equitably across social groupings and you equip the poorest people with resources, they're the ones that circulate money back into the economy. So we have believed for a long time Mm -hmm. in many places that the facts will set us free. And it's our job to just simply communicate in the plainest possible terms. Now, facts, we know, bounce off of frames. A better explanation of the human cognitive processing system would be, I'll see it when I believe it, not the other way around. 
And mm-hmm. so because we have thought, well, because we're actually saying things that are true about sources of economic prosperity, sources of economic well-being, sustainability, the centrality of the environment, the importance of social care programs and how those have an uplifting effect, not just in people's lives, but on overall economic indicators, because those things are true mm-hmm. and the other things are, yes, false, they are lies, we, don't, we shouldn't have to sell that. And in fact, selling that, quote unquote, is unseemly. It's, you know, that's, that's the yucky stuff of kind of crappy advertising and the right wing that has to peddle their falsehoods packaged up in some really nice paper. And so we mm. have been caught decades and decades and decades behind because we have fundamentally neglected the fact that the way that people reason and come to judgments is not based in fact. I mean, I couldn't agree more as someone who's kind of been working on the left for a good few years now. The amount of times that I've had arguments with people about, you know, who are just like, we just need to tell the truth. And if we if we even think about how we might strategically communicate things, aren't we just as bad as everyone else? Uh, Yeah, more, more, more of those conversations than I've had hot dinners. So I want to move on because time is ticking away and I want to talk about some of the alternatives. So Ellie, let's start with um, a couple of the recommended stories in the Framing the Economy report. Can you talk us through um, some of the suggestions that came out for how to do things differently? Yeah, so um, basically uh, we decided the, the Framing the Economy report was sort of a bit unique in the sense that it wasn't just a group of researchers. We also brought in a network of progressives from different progressive organizations who would be most likely to use the framing at, at the end. Mm. We decided that what we wanted to tackle was fatalism. Mm-hmm. And the reason we chose that is because we agreed that people won't listen to economic policies that would provide a change in direction if they don't feel that change is possible in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to communicate the idea that the economy has been designed by human beings and it can be redesigned in whatever way we like. And we tested lots of different metaphors and lots of different values. We came up with two stories. Uh, One we said was the populist story, which was basically kind of hinged on the idea of elites versus the people. Mm-hmm. And it used a computer programming metaphor. So we talked about reprogramming the economy, mm. which I wasn't very keen on. I thought nobody would get it. But actually in the research, it did really, really well. And it has actually been used by the Labour Party okay. in a few of their speeches since. With For that story, we also activated the value of equal justice or a strong economy. Mm-hmm. The second story that we came up with was not populist. So in other words, it kind of brought people together mm-hmm. rather than pitting elites against the people. We wanted to communicate to people that a a changed economy would kind of improve life for everybody. Okay. And so we used a rail tracks metaphor, talking about how the economy, we're, we're sort of all on, on a track together, going in a particular direction. We need to change the track. And we also activated the value of fulfillment. So in other words, happiness. And we developed two stories because we know that people have to talk about the economy in different circumstances. If you want to encourage business people to back a more progressive economy, uh, you might not want to start talking about elites versus people. You might want to have something that kind of brings people together. Um, And the second story we found was also better for um, talking about the environment as well. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that's the the kind of key stories that came out of the Framing the Economy report. And that, how does that compare to your alternative stories? First, let me underscore and amplify the first point that Ellie made about cynicism. What we find in study after study after study, and I don't just work in the U.S., I've done work in Australia, New Zealand, in the EU, in Ireland. Uh, what we find is that frequently, if not usually, um, our opposition is not the opposition, it's cynicism. It's not that people don't believe our ideas are right, it's that they don't believe our ideas are possible. And so when we name and we belabor these giant problems, whether they be economic, whether they be environmental, whether they be, you know, issues of the abrogation of rights of migrants or of women or of, you know, folks who are trans, like all of the above, right? All of the shitty, terrible mm -hmm. things that are happening globally. When we underscore that for people, our solution doesn't feel commensurate to the response. So when you have just announced that, you know, the total planetary destruction and you're like, so you should change your light bulb, people's bullshit meter is functional and they can listen to that and be like, uh-huh. And the same goes for the other kinds of actions that we would like people to take, you know, for example, participating civically or more specifically voting. When we have just mm -hmm. underlined for them that everything is horrible then that call to action just does not feel like a like an effective answer to the problem that we've outlined. So combating cynicism is really, really core to an effective message. The thing that I would add to what Ellie has said is that what we've really found about an effective economic story is that we have to tie it very, very explicitly to race and to this process that I described earlier that we call in the U.S. dog whistling, i.e. the use of racially coded speech in order to shame and blame or impugn or divide us from each other based on what we look like, where we come from, what our accent, who we love, you know, what our gender, all of the above. Basically, in a nutshell, the way that I summarize it is point your finger at the bad guy, not the brown guy. And what we have found in our research, all of which is available publicly, and I'm happy to, you know, pass along those resources mm -hmm. so people can look at it at their leisure, is that when we narrate the dog whistle, when we actually use a message that is rooted in a shared value first and foremost, names race explicitly, then moves second to call out this scapegoating, to call out this deliberate division as a means to aid and abet plutocracy, and then finally step three, call in explicit terms for cross-racial unity, that is what really works much more so than kind of a standard left or center-left message that is just about pure economic populism. And so what that sounds like in language so that it's not an abstraction is, just to give you one for example, no matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. But today, mm. A handful of corporations, or but today, a wealthy few and the politicians they pay for, divide us from each other based on what we look like or where we come from, hoping we'll look the other way while they hoard the riches that our work creates and hand kickbacks and spoils to their donors. By coming together across racial differences, we can make this a place where freedom is for everyone, no exceptions. So mm -hmm. that kind of a message, that one, two, three 
is what we find works both economically and in order to establish and bring to the fore issues of racial justice, which after all in the United States is the crux of a progressive platform. We cannot have economic equality until we have racial equality. And that's just a fact. Mm. So, I'm, I'm, again, I'm hearing quite a lot of similarities. But one of the things that I wanted to dig into was that you, obviously you've both talked about this idea of kind of creating a something of a common ground or this idea of a, a bigger us and then also a, a populist, kind of a populist notion of an, of an us and them and the you know the them is the elites and the kind of um, you know exactly as you just outlined a, a nap. But one of the questions that we had was, what are kind of some of the dangers of a a populist kind of us and them language? For example, how do you talk about a bigger us without say invoking nationalism and excluding migrants? For example, so kind of I guess if both of you could talk a little bit about the nuances of meeting people where they are in your messaging. So I have a couple of different answers. Number one, the attention to subtlety and nuance that you just uplifted is really important. So we know, for example, I I frustratingly tell people that it is the not all Olympics when we do qualitative research. And what I mean by not all, I don't know if that's a phrase that's made, you know, the the way that when we say anything, people are like, not all men, not all white people. So when you sit behind but a two, lot of them, <laughs> when you sit behind the two way mirror of focus groups, which, by the way, is not a way to feel better about America. If you'd like to feel better about America, <laughs> I do not recommend sitting. It's basically just like watching Fox News without hair and makeup. It's it's not oh, an God. attractive place to be. <laughs> um, what we find is that we actually have to be incredibly deliberate but about saying things like a handful of corporations or certain politicians or these rich people. So first of all, we have to be very, very careful not to say the wealthy do this or corporations do that. Because when we do that, people hear us saying all, even yeah. if we're not saying that. So mm-hmm. that's number one. That's number two, on the flip side... It's actually incredibly vital to name a villain. Yes, the message has to begin step one in unity and solidarity and shared value. You know, most of us try to treat others the way we want to be treated, or most of us think that if you work for a living, you ought to earn a living, or, you know, most of us just want to get through our day without meddling in someone else's. So you start in that shared place. And then you move second, and the ordering is actually really significant. You move second to the problem statement. And yeah, listen, stories have villains. And if we do not actually call someone out and provide a clear picture of how the situation that we find completely and totally intolerable came to be, then we are just leaving the cognitive terrain open for people to either fill in the villain for themselves, which is going to be individual causation because that's the air we breathe and the water we swim in, Mm. or It's going to be because the other side, which I already said, is well-financed and is thinking through marketing on a daily, hourly, minute basis. They're going to stick that story in there. And so there has to be a calling out of somebody. Otherwise, the storyline doesn't make sense of how we got into the situation that we are because the other side is naming a villain and they're claiming that that villain is migrants or is people on the dole or is people who just, quote, don't believe in our way of life. Mm -hmm. But thirdly, and this is the last thing I'll say, Mm -hmm. we're also very careful in how we are calling out someone or something to adhere to 
I know you guys are a bunch of a religious people who don't understand this concept because you're not Americans, <laughs> but there's a Hate Christian them. idea. And by the way, I'm a Jew, so like this is how pervasive <laughs> Christianity is. Even I can spout this off for you. Um, wow. Love the sinner, hate the sin. So we're very careful in our messaging to not vilify people because they are wealthy, not vilify people because they are business people, etc. It's a greedy and powerful few or the wealthy few who are determined to hoard the spoils or the corporations that undermine people's basic rights. And so basically what we're saying is it's not the fact of you occupying a social class. It's the fact of how you behave. And if you would, you know, get right with Jesus and come to your senses and actually treat people like human beings and recognize that the source of our wealth and well-being is the efforts of the many, then you're cool. You can be welcomed back into the fold. Okay. Wow. I mean, that made sense. I'm not. A, I'm a heathen, and that made sense to me. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> we are, we've almost come to time, but I just wanted to end on something really, really practical. So you've both been doing this brilliantly throughout the episode, anyway. But I wanted to ask if we could just end on a really kind of concrete example of how to change the frame on like one big issue. If you if you could pick something that you've been working on and just give us a quick uh, example of of how you've kind of flipped the spin on it, that would be amazing to end on. Well, my example would actually be, I, I can only credit a NAT for this because uh, this was the result of a fellowship that I did. A NAT was the, was the leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would be on um, no deal Brexit. Mm-hmm. And what I would say, obviously, we don't know whether no deal Brexit is going to happen or not because it's all chaos at the moment. And perhaps by the time this podcast has been released, everything will be in a completely different situation. But I did a long messaging project on it. And what I found was that the catastrophe frame, you know, that no Brexit, we're going to we're gonna ca- crash out, it's going to be a catastrophe, everything's going to go horribly wrong, is actually not really working. Mm. The people that you would want to sort of change their minds, they either think that it's uh, embellished or invented entirely, the idea that no deal Brexit is going to be a catastrophe. Wow. It seems that what people are seeking more than anything else is clarity. They mm-hmm. don't really understand what's happening with Brexit and they want to understand And so the way I have suggested that advocates of either remaining in the EU or just opposing a no-deal Brexit talk about Brexit is by talking about making a plan, planning for the future, uh, and that the idea of leaving without a deal is actually um, leaving without a plan. And again, I credit Anat totally for this because Mm. it was her who taught me this one. Oh, I like that. Okay. I mean, I was already convinced, but I'm further convinced. Uh, Anna, one example for us of uh, badass framing. Yeah, I'll point to the fight for 15 here. I know that sounds like crap in a UK context, but in the United States, if you can believe it, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. I can believe it. I can believe it. Yeah, which is basically, I mean, poverty wages is a generous way to describe that. Mm. And in the context in which 7.25 is the federal wage, and to be clear, there are states that have passed increases to that. So, for example, in my own home state of California, that wasn't the case. But Mm. in that context, uh, under President Obama, who had come out in favor of hiking that to $12 an hour at a time in which the presumptive Democratic nominee in the halcyon days, 
About 100 years ago, the presumptive Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton, had also voiced her approval for 12. There was a group of badass people who decided to engage in what we now call the fight for 15. For those of you who, you know, the, the math there is you're at 725 and suddenly your outcry and the name of your campaign, not just a sort of buried deep three paragraphs down demand, is more than double that. Mm. And initially, when the Fight for 15 was assembling, the large national groups, the party, kind of the powers that be inside the D.C. Beltway were like, you're crazy. Mm. People are going to think you sound nuts. How could you possibly be fighting for 15? And so one was the audacity of the demand relative to what the status quo was. But more importantly, it was a frame flip. So the frame flip was that we were in an era in which generally we battled minimum wage fights in the context of, quote, growing the economy. So uh, the pundits that be and the kind of centrist Democratic pollsters were advising to say, we should raise wages because it will grow the economy. We should pay people more money because then there'll be customers in our stores and making these kind of practical economic benefits arguments for the reasons you could probably guess, Mm. because then we sound like the adults in the room who also know how to manage the economy. (laughs) In point of fact, when you try to make an argument that we should stop basically paying people poverty wages because it will grow the economy, you can't get your base to repeat that message because the base doesn't give a shit about the size of the GDP. Nobody gets up in the morning and is like, can't wait to look at the size of the GDP. That's really, (laughs) I'm really passionate about that. I'm going to go measure it and see what it is. So no one would repeat that message. So the fight for 15 was A, an audacious demand relative to the status quo, and B, it was a framing that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. It was grounded in the idea of fairness and morality and not economic benefit. After raising the wage to 15 in the Seattle-Tacoma area that then went on to become the case in the Bay Area where I live, by San Francisco, in other parts of California, it is now the law of the land for the majority of Americans. Once California, New York, and a handful of other states, which are our most populous states, um, have passed it. And, you know, you have this wow. thing that people were saying was like, how dare you? You can't even get 12. The polling says the public is, you know, barely approving of 12. Instead, we just leapt over that and were like, you don't take polling, you don't do messaging to take the temperature, you do messaging to change the temperature. We're not here to be a thermometer, we're here to be a thermostat. Wow, love it. Great way to end. I want to get that on a t-shirt. Okay, so Anat Shankar Osario, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find more of your work or hear more from you in general, uh, and more great t-shirt slogans, where can they go? Uh, they can go either to the podcast where I profile six campaigns we've won around the world and the messaging we did, we used to do it. That's Amazing. Brave New Words anywhere you listen or bravenewwordspod.com if you want to look at the website and get even more. And then mm-hmm. every bit of research that I do that I'm allowed to make public, and that's both within the U.S. and in other countries, you can get that at ASO, my initials, asocommunications.com. Amazing. Okay. Um, and Ellie Mayer Hagen, thanks for joining us despite fighting a cold. When's the book out? Can we pre-order it? How can we find out more about Ellie Mayer Hagen? 
the book is out in the middle of next year, uh, although obviously it may be delayed because it's a really terrible time to be writing about current affairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they have to write big sections of it, depending on what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the best way to find out more about me is to follow me on my deeply unprofessional Twitter account, which is at Miss Ellie May. Oh, and Ellie is spelled with an I-E and a- a- uh, May with an E, like okay. May West, who I was named after. Okay, amazing. Uh, And we'll also at you both when we put out the pod. So that's it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, I know I have, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. And who knows, we might even have merch soon. I'm going to try and get some of those t-shirts made. Uh, Don't forget to get your tickets to our live event in London on the 5th of November. We'll put a link in the description of this episode. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Bye.